Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to episode 265 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, Jimmy will be answering listeners' weird questions. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today on the panel is Jimmy Aiken. Hey, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. It's another Fifth Friday, so we're bringing you another episode of Weird Questions with Jimmy and Cy Kellett of Catholic Answers Live this week. Jimmy, what weird questions are you answering this time? We're going to be uh, answering questions on the Mandela effect, the Nephilim and the biblical figure of Og, asking obscure saints for their intercession, Padre Pio and time travel prayer, Captain Kirk, transporters and sacraments, agents of shield, AI and souls, atom-sized relics of Jesus, time travel and divination, murder and the seal of confession, and more. Those are some great weird questions. So let's hear your answers. Jimmy Aiken, uh, senior apologist here at Catholic Answers. Uh, thanks for being with us. Well, if I am with you, it's my pleasure. But I mean, you say that we're back for another hour, but maybe you, who knows? Maybe you, this is a weird question. So maybe you really did sign off for the weekend and we're here from a parallel reality or something. Oh, yeah, that's entirely, those are the kind of questions we are going to get this hour, uh, too. So, uh, could be, could be the Mandela effect. Oh, wait, the Mandela effect. Is that is that like the butterfly one or is that something different? It's different than the butterfly effect, but it can involve butterflies if you want. OK, <laughs> can you tell me what it is? The Mandela yeah, the, the Mandela effect is a proposed or is a reported phenomenon where people remember things about history, including Nelson Mandela, the former president of South Africa, uh, that then is disconfirmed by historical records, but they sh- they're they certain they remember these things as being true. And so the idea is maybe we're jumping from one timeline or one alternate history to another without realizing it. Oh, yes. I remember you. There's one where there's a movie with. Yes. The, the, with Shaq. The, with, with Shaquille O'Neal playing a genie called Kazam and so forth. Yeah. Now, this is the reported phenomenon, um, but the proposed explanation is that it, people are just misremembering things. There was a movie involving a famous black athlete playing a genie, but it was not Shaquille O'Neal playing Kazam. Oh, OK. <laughs> OK, so uh, I, I think I got on that one. I think I was on the alternate timeline. Weird questions. I'm, sometimes people call and ask weird questions, and that's always a nice thing. But uh, what we've started to do in uh, in recent months is we collect weird questions, ones that come to Jimmy via email or on his social media account or to our email here at, at the show. And we get them all together and then we ask Jimmy the weird questions. So you ready to do, delve into some weirdness, Jimmy? To quote SpongeBob SquarePants, I'm ready. All right. Andrew asks this. How, as Catholics, do we understand the Nephilim and Og without sacrificing history and science? So the Nephilim are a group of 
apparently people mentioned in the Bible a couple of times, most prominently in Genesis 6, right before the beginning of the flood account. And Og is a king of uh, an area in the Transjordan, or what would today be the modern state of Jordan, um, who the Israelites pass through his kingdom on their way to the promised land, and they kill him and Actually, some of the Israelite tribes end up settling in Og's territory. He's, he's known as Og, king of Bashan. That was his region that he ruled, Bashan. And he was reported to be a person uh, descended from a group of people that are mentioned a few times in the Old Testament that are of extraordinary height. And so Og himself was apparently someone of extraordinary height. He was a very, very tall person. In terms of how now the church has no teaching on how we should understand either the Nephilim or Og, but the approach that I recommend is to seek to understand the passage and what it would have meant to the original audience and first and then try to figure out, well, what should we make of it in light of that? So the first job is exegesis or trying to interpret the passage on its own context before we try to fit it with modern views dealing with our knowledge of history or science or things like that. The first task is always what was the sacred author trying to say? And when people come to the Nephilim passage, the main one, which is in uh, Genesis 6, we have this group of individuals referred to as the sons of God who take wives from among the daughters of men, and the Nephilim are apparently born as a result of those unions. Now, the term Nephilim is sometimes misidentified as a Hebrew word, and people will say, okay, it, it means something like fallen ones. And so according to some people, the, the Nephilim would be fallen angels or maybe aliens that came down to earth or things like that. Problem is that interpretation of the word does not fit the rules of Hebrew grammar. The truth is this is not a Hebrew word. This is an Aramaic word. And in Aramaic, Nephilim means giants. And you can see that in that understanding of it is confirmed in the Greek Old Testament, in the Septuagint, where the word that they use to translate Nephilim into Greek is gigantes, uh -huh. which is where we get giants. And so the Nephilim, what, whatever their origin, were a people of unusual height. They were, they were larger than normal. That doesn't mean they're 50 feet tall, but it does mean they're taller than normal. And so, um, well, then how do we understand them? Well, in the, the reason they're giants is apparently connected to the fact that they're born from these unions between the sons of God and the daughters of men. Now, daughters of men is a fairly straightforward way of saying women or birthing persons or whatever the current politically correct way to say women is. But the question is then, who are these sons of God? And there have been a variety of proposals. Um, we know elsewhere in the Old Testament, the term sons of God is used to refer to angelic beings, like at the beginning of the book of Job, where the sons of God present themselves before God in his heavenly court. So we know that there's this angelic usage of the term. But a lot of people have resisted that as an interpretation 
because angels don't natively have bodies. And so, well, how could an angel impregnate a woman and and have a baby and stuff like that? That doesn't seem to make any sense to them. Right. And so there have been attempts to explain these sons of God as being something else, such as members of the line of Cain, which doesn't really make any sense because Cain was a bad guy, or maybe they're rulers or priests or something like that. And... While those interpretations are not impossible, and while I myself once advocated views like that because it's the most natural to a modern understanding of what angels are, I had to re- I had to change my view because after digging into the question, I found that both before, based on the linguistic and literary evidence from the ancient world, both before and after Genesis was written this would have been interpreted in the angelic sense, that these are angelic sons of God. And if you want to hear a discussion of that evidence, uh, check out episode 87 of Mysterious World, which is all about the Nephilim. So you can just Google Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Nephilim and it'll come up. But that's what the evidence would indicate the biblical author is trying to communicate. And so if that being the case, well, how would we explain this today without, as Andrew says, sacrificing history or science? Well, the um, one possibility is to appeal to the nature of Genesis, and specifically the early chapters of Genesis. It's been noted uh, by scholars of every persuasion, believers and unbelievers, Catholics, Jews, Protestant, Orthodox, everybody, recognizes that the first 11 chapters of Genesis are written in a different way than the later chapters of Genesis after Abraham comes on the scene. And in 1950, Pope Pius XII addressed this difference, and he said that the first 11 chapters of Genesis are attempting to communicate, although they do relate to history in a real way, it's they're not written the way history is today, and they use, in his words, simple and metaphorical language to communicate certain concepts to us. And so that puts us on alert to the fact we need to be sensitive to the fact that the early chapters of Genesis are using simple metaphorical language. So we shouldn't necessarily take everything literally. And as a result, uh, you can say, okay, well, given the type of literature that early Genesis is, we wouldn't necessarily need to say, okay, so angels really mated with humans. You know, this may be part of that simple metaphorical language and it's communicating something else. So that's one way of looking at it. It's not the only way, though, because just because um, that's one possibility doesn't mean there are others. Uh, There have been various figures down through Christian history, such as St. Augustine and St. Thomas Aquinas, who said, you know, there, even though angels do not natively have bodies, they can assume bodies temporarily. They called them aerial bodies because they would suppose that the bodies of angels would be 
temporarily drawn together from the matter in the air. And then once the angel was done appearing in human form, the angel would disperse the body back into the air. And so there's then a question of, well, if they do that, and we know they manipulate matter because angels can affect things in the material world. We see God using them to do things like cause plagues, which is something, you know, plagues, pathogens are microscopic. So clearly angels can influence matter on the microscopic level. Well, um, maybe they could put together an aerial body that's so sophisticated and so closely imitates what a human can do that uh, maybe they could manipulate matter in a way resulting in a pregnancy. Or if they don't do it with their own aerial body, one possibility that St. Thomas Aquinas explored was the, and actually was convinced of, was that they could, in principle, collect the needed cells from a man and then use them to impregnate a woman so that, and I won't go into how he, how he describes them doing that, but that's the basic principle, that an angel could collect cells from a man and use them to make a baby with a woman. And Aquinas points out, though, that really the baby is 100% human. It's just there was an angel doing a kind of non-in vitro, in vitro fertilization, if I can put it that way. And so there are some possibilities here. uh, But like I said, for a further discussion, check out episode 87 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. Oh, and in terms of Og, the king of Bashan, Well, uh, if there were such people, he could be descended from them, or he could otherwise have just been a really tall guy, and people assumed he had some giant blood in him because he himself was taller than normal. Andrew, thanks for getting us started with Weird Questions with Jimmy Aiken. Pat asks you this, reading different Catholic publications, I come upon saints who don't have a date on the liturgical calendar and who are, speaking frankly, obscure. They are honored on All Saints Day. Would asking for their intercession be more efficacious, given that the more popular saints are very busy with the prayers directed to them? Well, obviously, this is a matter of speculation, but I wouldn't say that praying to lesser known saints would be more efficacious on the grounds that the popular ones are more busy. Uh, The reason I say that is because people are not suffering from limitations in heaven. And so whatever a person needs to clear their inbox of prayer requests in heaven, they're going to have that. <laughs> okay. And so if you're the Virgin Mary and you're the single most popular saint, God's going to make sure you have all the resources you need to be able to deal with those prayer requests effectively. So I don't think it would be more effective on that ground. Having said that, there is a ground I can imagine that God might choose to answer requests routed through lesser-known saints in a greater way, and that is to encourage people to pray to those lesser-known saints, to, uh, to not just forget about them, but to continue to remember them and honor their memory and reach out to them in prayer and things like that. And I could imagine God saying, okay, I haven't had a prayer request routed through this guy in a while. Um, Let's 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 look on it extra favorably to encourage people to remember this guy who, you know, lived his life as a Christian and drew close to me and is now in heaven. And I don't want people to forget about him. So maybe I will. Maybe this is a nice <clears throat> thing to do, so to speak, to remember these 
lesser known saints and to, uh, to reach out to them as our prayer partners. And God might reward that in a special way. Thanks, Pat. Uh, thanks uh, very, very much for that question. Uh, next question comes from Honduras. Alba Maria asks this from Honduras, Jimmy. I read a quote on Twitter attributed to St. Padre Pio in which he told someone he prayed regularly for the good death of his uncle, to which the other person replied confused because his uncle had passed away years ago. St. Padre Pio replied that it didn't matter because God was not bound by time and he would make use of his prayer if that was his wish. Regardless of the veracity of this quote, is this possible? Can we pray for the good death of someone who died years ago? And can that change something that happened in the past? So it wouldn't change anything that happened in the past. What it might do is, is contribute to what happened in the past. So you wouldn't be changing history with a prayer, but you could be affecting history so that it turns out the way it did, however it turned out. Now, um, Padre Pio is known to have said things like this, and he's not the only one. Uh, St. Faustina has also uh, similar sentiments in things that she wrote. Uh, the uh, popular apologist C.S. Lewis also has a discussion of this question, and I've written about it myself. And some people who have particular theories of time, like there's a view called presentism, which holds that only the present is real, could have trouble seeing or have expressed doubt about this practice based on the idea of, well, if the past is no longer real, how could my prayer affect anything there? But I don't think that that is a compelling argument because when, even if you accept presentism, which personally I don't, I think that the past, the present, and the future are all equally real from God's perspective. But even if I were a presentist, it wouldn't affect my view of that because when the past was real, God is omniscient. He knows everything, including what I'm going to pray in the future. And so if it's 1960, and someone is dying, and, it, and I'm praying for that person in 2020, God knows I'm going to be making that prayer request in 2020, and he can answer it in 1960 if he wants. So the mere fact that God is omniscient and knows everything that happens in time means that it doesn't matter what, what theory of time you hold, whether only the present is real or wh whether the past, the present, and the future are real. God can still answer those prayer requests. And so I think like uh, Padre Pio and St. Faustina and C.S. Lewis, I think it's entirely possible to pray not just for events in the future, but to pray for events in the past as well. There's some limitations uh, to that. I mean, there are certain things I wouldn't advise people to pray for, like if you know history turned out a certain way. Um, I, I wouldn't encourage prayer that it go differently. For example, since we know the September 11th attacks happened in 2001, I think it would be a waste of time and foolish to pray that they not have happened. But since we don't know the details of like every person who was dying in the September 11th attacks, you could pray for those people and say, God, as they're dying, please help them come to you. or please help, you know, people survive. You're not going to change history by that, but you might be contributing to the survival of people who did survive. So I think those are possible. 
like I said, I've written about this in a in a uh, article online called Praying Across Time. And so if you want to read more about that, including the cautions I would suggest about what not to pray for, uh, just Google Praying Across Time Jimmy Aiken and it'll come up. Thank you, Alba Maria, for that uh, question. We're going on now to Steve. And I know this is going to be a good one because I can see that it's got Captain Kirk's name in it. It's weird questions with Jimmy Aiken. And here comes one on a transporter Uh, based on the theory that the transporter and he's talking about the transporter in the TV show uh, Star uh, Star Trek kills the person and then replicates them as clones. Here's a scenario. Captain Kirk goes to confession and then beams down to the wacky planet. While there, he does not get baptized and has unmarried relations with green women and then beams back up. He does something like this numerous times throughout his tour of duty aboard the Enterprise. Does that mean that there would be multiple Captain Kirks in heaven, purgatory, and hell? Okay, so you'll notice that Steve said based on the theory that the transporter kills a person and then replicates them as a clone. Right. And that's an important qualifier because Star Trek is inconsistent in how it describes how the transporter works. Much of the time, it does suggest it tears you apart and kills you and then puts you back together. And that would be would then be a transporter clone. There are some places, though, where Star Trek suggests maybe it's not really killing you. Maybe it's just transforming your body during the transport process. And you're actually still alive and even conscious during that. So it may not kill you. But assuming it does. What would we make of this Captain Kirk scenario? Well, Steve has put his finger on the key point. Uh, After he beams down, every time after he beams down, Captain Kirk is going to be a clone. And a clone is just another type of twin. Artificial cloning is essentially artificial twinning. So, Psykelet, if you have identical twins, do they have different souls? Yes, I have noticed that they do <laughs> have different okay. souls. Yes. Okay. So every time you have a twin, you have a clone or you have a, a, a being with a soul. And so if you have two twins, when they both die, you're going to have two people in heaven. Well, if you had gone into a mother's womb, and by the way, this is immoral, do not do this. But if you had gone into a mother's womb and artificially twinned her child, you would she would then raise multiple twins they would all have souls and you'd have multiple people in heaven even though there was only one original person these twins split off from well if you then use a transporter to do the same thing it transportation would just be a form of artificial twinning um you would then have multiple captain kirk twins each of which would have its own soul and depending on what they did and how they did or didn't respond to God's grace, you would have multiple Captain Kirks in heaven, hell, or purgatory. Steve, thank you very much. Always like a good Captain Kirk question for Jimmy on a Friday. It's Weird Questions with Jimmy Aiken. Jimmy, you ready for some more weirdness? Ready. All right, Zach says this. My girlfriend and I have been watching the show Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. And came across an interesting moral dilemma. And then uh, Zach says, spoilers ahead. Some listeners might want to skip this one. Okay, so if you're in the middle of watching Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., maybe take a break for a minute. Nice time to make a sandwich. In the show, an android is created 
and is nearly indistinguishable from human. She gets her hands on the Darkhold, a seemingly dark magic book that can enable the reader to do essentially anything. To escape her android programming and have free will, she uses the Darkhold to create a machine that generates a human body for herself, crafted from matter taken from an alternate dimension. Complete with her consciousness, memories, etc. At this point, she considers herself to be human, as she now can choose what she wants to do and, and is experiencing feelings, not just the si simulated responses to stimulation her android self had. My question is, is she really human? I remember an episode where you spoke about the Star Trek transporters and how it essentially destroys and creates another human body. In this case, would this human body receive a soul? Would the dark forces at play or alternate dimensional matter inhibit this from happening? And how does an AI consciousness play into it, into it all? Okay, so anytime I discuss the Star Trek transporters, I point out that they're inconsistent about yeah. does it really kill you or not. So I'm, I'm, I'm sure whatever episode that was, I qualified that answer because I always do that. But assume, but regardless of whether it kills you, it definitely, you definitely end up with a living human body at the end of the process, unless there's been a transporter accident. Oh, because yeah. sometimes, rarely, what comes back doesn't live too long, to quote Star Trek, the motion picture. But um, it, you, you do end up with a living human body. And as a matter of principle, anytime you have a living human body, it has a soul because it's the soul that is the life principle of the body. So if you've got a living human body, it's got a soul. And uh, if you have a human body with a soul, that's a human being. So if this android somehow manufactured a human body, then it would be accompanied by a human soul that would have come into existence at the same time the body did, because that's what happens. And it would therefore be a human being. Now, in back in the 80s, the, uh, over at DC Comics, so this is DC rather than Marvel, there was a comic book called Swamp Thing. And Swamp Thing was about a scientist named Alec Holland who was experimenting with a plant growth formula in a swamp. And there was an accident and he ended up becoming a swamp monster, Swamp Thing. Well, in the 80s, it was it, the series was kind of retconned. Retcon is comic book slang for retroactive continuity, meaning it changed something. Uh, and the change in this case was actually Alec Holland totally died in that swamp accident. But under the influence of his plant growth formula, a swamp plant grew that then absorbed his memory patterns. And so Swamp Thing was actually a plant who thought that it was Alec Holland because it had Alec Holland's memories. In this case, if you have this android with the artificial intelligence and it creates a human body, well, in this and, and the body has all the memories of the android, then that's essentially what you've got. You've got a human being who is newly created but has been implanted with the memories of this artificial intelligence. Oh, yeah. And so it would be a human who thinks it's an artificial intelligence, just like Swamp Thing was a plant who thought it was a man. Man, that's uh, Zach. Thanks for that question. Appreciate it. It's weird questions with Jimmy Aiken 
and uh, they just get weirder as you go. So here's yeah. one from. Oh, oh. He, he also asked about what about how would dark forces or alternate dimensional matter affect this? They wouldn't unless the writers choose to have them do so. We'd like to take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Drew M., Joe D., Marshall B., Catherine O., and Kathy F. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. And you can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is also brought to you by Fairvento Law PLLC, now assisting clients with expungements and set-asides of Michigan convictions. To learn more, call 231-202-3321 or go to fearventolaw.com, F-I-O-R-V-E-N-T-O-Law.com. And by Deliver Contacts, offering honest pricing and reliable service for all your contact lens needs. See the difference at delivercontacts.com. Uh, Nicholas asks this, here's a sci-fi question wrapped up in some theology for you. Have you ever seen the anime Neon Genesis Evangelion, and how do you think it treats the ideas of Gnosticism, Kabbalah, and other esoteric themes? So there's not a lot I can say about this one at present. I think I may have seen an episode or two of Neon Genesis Evangelion years and years ago. I'm certainly aware of the franchise, but I've never watched it fully. And so I can't really comment on how it treats concepts like Gnosticism and Kabbalah. Um... For people who may not be aware, Gnosticism was a religious movement that was prominent between the second and the fourth centuries A.D., and it it was kind of a heretical form of Christianity and sometimes Judaism that thought, among other things, that the that there were sort of multiple gods and the one that made our world broke it. It was kind of a broken god that made a broken world. Um, you'll often hear Gnostics described as people who believed that they were saved through knowledge. And that's a terrible explanation. Never say that. Because, Psychelet, do we have any kind of knowledge as Christians that we attribute our salvation to? I mean, I don't know, it might be even called uh, an Evangelion. Yeah, we've got to have knowledge of the good news. Right, the gospel. So everybody think who thinks it's possible to be saved has some way that they think you need to be saved, and that involves knowledge. So everybody thinks that there's a sense in which knowledge helps save you. The Gnostics claim to have a specific form of hidden, revealed knowledge that they thought was necessary for salvation, but it wasn't knowledge in general. It was their own special secret sauce recipe of knowledge. Um, in terms of, uh, so that's what Gnosticism was. Um, Kabbalah is a form of Jewish mysticism, or I should say primarily Jewish mysticism. It developed over the course of the centuries, and it even spilled over a little bit into Christianity. There is a kind of Christian Kabbalah, um, and it incorporates some elements of Gnosticism. Uh, it also, because it it also incorporates some heresy. So I would warn people about Gnosticism and Kabbalah saying, you know, it may be legitimate to study them academically. And as a, as an apologist, I've done some of that. In fact, lately I've been studying uh, Kabbalah in particular as a way of acquiring a better knowledge of it so that I can help people who interact with it. Um, but 
Uh, you want to be careful in these areas. I can't really say how Neon Genesis Evangelion has treated them, but you do want to be careful with these ideas. If you want an academic channel uh, on YouTube that goes into some of both of these, there is a channel called Esoterica. It's by a, a Jewish scholar, and he has videos where he talks about these concepts from an academic perspective. So it's going to be more reliable as an academic, historically accurate description of Gnosticism and Kabbalah than what you'll get from a lot of sources, which are just really loosey-goosey with the facts. Up next is Andrew's question. Andrew asks this, Jimmy. Since Jesus touched millions of items throughout his life, and over thousands of years the items have broken down, yet matter is never destroyed, would this mean there are atom-sized relics? Well, it's going to depend on how you define a relic. Uh, the conventional way, so, you know, there's the three types of relics. First-class relics, which were part of a saint's body. Second-class relics, which were items that belonged to a saint or that the saint interacted with, at least in some way, like touching them. And then there's third-class relics, which are ones that have been touched to relics. Well, um, I don't know that Jesus touched millions of items during his life, um, but he certainly touched an enormous number of items. We all do. Whether it technically was millions in 33 years, I don't know. But uh, yeah, those items have largely broken down. And so you it, it's a logical question to ask. Could these things still be considered relics? And as I said, it is going to depend on how you conceive of relics, because the conventional definitions don't say that, oh, it has to be a macroscopic item. You know, it's something that you can see with the naked eye. They don't say that. On the other hand, you could argue it's presupposed. You know, like, would you consider every atom of oxygen that Jesus ever breathed in and out a relic? Well, not on the standard analysis. No, the standard analysis assumes that a relic is some kind of macroscopic object that you could see with the naked eye. But if you want to be literal about it and say, I don't care how big it is, um, well, then, yeah, all of the items that uh, that Jesus touched during his life, you could, I mean, at least all the ones he owned, uh, you could consider second-class relics. And then as they broke down over the course of the ages, uh, the fact they were broken down doesn't stop them from being relics. And that's certainly not the case, for example, with first class relics. You know, if you have a saint's body and it's whole and intact, well, it's a relic. But then if you take part of that body, the fact you've divided it doesn't mean you don't have a relic anymore. It means you got two relics. And so if the stuff that Jesus touched or the stuff that Jesus owned then got broken down into smaller objects over the centuries, even down to the atomic level, there could be uh, a vast number of very tiny and even atom-sized second-class relics of Jesus. But what about first-class relics? You, uh, you know, this is something that uh, Andrew didn't ask, but first-class relics are always more interesting than second-class relics. So let's go to first-class relics. You may have heard, Cy Kellett, host of Catholic Answers Live, that all of the cells in your body replace every seven years or all of the atoms in your body replace every seven years. I have years. in fact heard that, yeah. Yeah, that's not actually true, but something similar to it is true. There actually are parts, uh, cells in your body that you keep your whole life, but 
most of them change out. And so there are about 35 trillion human cells in your body. And your body needs to, and those cells are constantly dying and being replaced. And so um, it turns out that you actually make 35 trillion cells about every 100 days. Wow. So, so about every three months, you make a cykelet equivalent of new cells. And the matter that was in the old one, it may get recycled into new cells or it may be expelled from the body in one way or another. But over the course of his 33 years of human life, plus his time in the womb, Jesus would have had cycled through enormous numbers of cells, trillions, that then would have um, had matter from them released into the environment. And so if you're willing to say, I don't care how small it is, I'm going to consider it a relic, even if it's just on the atomic level, there would be enormous numbers of first-class Jesus relics on the atomic molecular level. Wow. Andrew, thank you very much yeah. for that question. To give an example, every day uh, we lose about 500 million skin cells that just flake off of our bodies. And so every day, Jesus would have been generated 500 million cellular skin cell relics. Man, uh, first of all, I'm very fascinated by the medical information there. But then just think about Jesus uh, doing that. Uh, that was a great question uh, there, Andrew. Thanks you very, very much. Uh, up next, this one comes from Colin, Jimmy. In number 2116 in the Catechism. The church rejects all forms of div, excuse me, divination because they all conceal a desire for power over time, history, and humans. How would time travel into the future for a purpose of seeing the future before God has revealed it not fall under the same, same condemnation? Isn't, it, isn't time travel power over time? Extra info. Even if God allows us to figure it out through natural technological advancement, we couldn't conclude that he must be fine with it for the same reason we don't accept technological advances in contraception, cloning and other sinful acts. So to deal with the last point first, because the last shall be first, um, it's true that just because God lets us figure out a technology doesn't mean it's OK to use it. You have to go to the moral question first of would this be intrinsically wrong? And that's why contraception and cloning and other technologically sinful forms of activity remain sins, even though we've figured out how to do them. It's because the, the action itself is sinful. But is traveling through time intrinsically sinful? Psychelet, are you traveling through time right now? Yeah, and I'm planning on uh, all weekend. All weekend, I'm going to yeah. continue traveling through time. Yeah, right. We have this forward time travel thing, and that's what we're talking about here because he's talking about time travel into the future. And we all do that naturally at a rate of one second per second in our local frame of reference. Yeah. But our local frame of reference can be out of sync with other frames of reference. And so, for example, if you got on a spaceship and went really fast at a significant portion of the speed of light and then turned around and came back, more time would have passed on Earth than did for you. And so even though you may have only traveled for a year, you might come back in the year 2500 and you'd be seeing the future from your perspective. And there doesn't seem to be anything in principle wrong with relativistic spaceflight. 
or um, you know, by yeah. which one travels at a different rate. Because if there were, we couldn't use airplanes because airplanes actually do this. It is just the fact that the differences are so small, we don't notice them. But it's actually been confirmed by taking atomic clocks onto airplanes and having them fly and both the fact that they're higher in the atmosphere, so they're farther out of Earth's gravity well than you are on the surface, and the fact they're moving faster than you are on the surface of the Earth. Time slows down slightly on airplanes, and you arrive slightly in the future from your own frame of reference. We just don't notice it. But there's nothing wrong with doing that. So how would we relate this to what the catechism says? Well, actually, if you read carefully in that section of the catechism, uh, that paragraph 2116, what it condemns is different practices like divination that in the catechism's words, falsely unveil the future. And that's a key qualifier. It does observe that these methods that falsely reveal the future conceal a power for desire over time and history and stuff. And that is a disordered desire in this case, because it's getting you to do something that you shouldn't be doing. You shouldn't be relying on something that falsely unveils the future. But what if it naturally unveils the future? Yeah, right. What if it accurately unveils the future? The catechism doesn't have a problem with weathermen giving weather reports, or and they're not even 100% reliable. It doesn't have a problem with you planning your day or your vacation based on what the weather report says. It doesn't have a problem with having a stock market forecast. Humans are wired to try to predict the future. That's one of the reasons we're so successful as a species is because we're better at figuring out what's going to happen than any other species on Earth is. So we're wired to want to know about the future, and it's okay to use methods that with some degree of accuracy forecast the future, like weather reports or business projections or th things like that. Um, and so if if it's legitimate in principle to learn about the future, as long as you're not using one of these false means, then it would in principle be legitimate to uh, view the future through some technological means like traveling to it and seeing what happens, which is actually technically what you do every time you get on an airplane and even more so, it would happen if you got on a spaceship and traveled relativistically. So if those are okay, some other means like having a TARDIS like Doctor Who and visiting the future or even having Doctor Who's time television that he's used on occasion to view other times directly, that would be okay too. Colin, thank you very much for that question. Let's see, we got uh, time to get at least one more and probably more than that. It's weird questions with Jimmy Aiken, and this one comes from Christian. In the Netflix, I can read Netflix. In the Netflix show *Peaky Blinders*, a woman confessed to a pre that was the worst. Uh, I tried to do a, a, a that little, was really maybe you can uh, top yourself and do it even worse than that. Pe but the *Peaky Blinders* necessarily. Peaky. Well, I'm sorry. Uh, I apologize to the entire United Kingdom for that. A woman confessed to a priest that she's going to murder someone. Obviously, this isn't how the sacrament of confession works. However, not only does the priest not correct her, but he then goes to Scotland Yard and informs them that the woman intends on murdering the individual. 
Has the priest broken the seal of confession or is he not bound by the secrecy because it wasn't a valid confession since it involves a murder that was going to take place, not one that had taken place? He's broken the seal. Yeah. Um, the, The church does not consider the seal to be dependent on there being a valid absolution at the end of a confession. Because if it did, a priest could do anything to uh, to derail that and then rat on you to whoever he wanted. He could, for example, say, oh, well, I'm just not going to give you an absolution now. So this wasn't a complete celebration of the sacrament. So I'm not bound by the seal. Or he could simulate it and and then rat on you. Or there could be a defect in his ordination that prevented it from being efficacious. Or there could have been a defect in a person's baptism. I mean, sometimes Father Benedict Groeschel mentioned in my presence once that in Brooklyn, they would have Jewish people coming to confession, and they might not know until after they'd given absolution, the person wasn't even baptized. And so there can be a lot of things that could uh, result in the sacrament not ending with a valid absolution. And in this case, if a woman is intending to commit murder, which is a grave sin, and she is not repented of that, it is to be presumed that any absolution she might have been given was invalid. I mean, hypothetically, she could be out of her mind enough that she doesn't realize that this is a grave sin, but that's not to be presumed. So it's to be presumed, even if she was absolved, that it would be invalid. But thank God the church does not just want our privacy protected when we've been given a valid absolution. The church wants people to be confident in going to confession, period. And so it does not matter that um, that she was deeply confused about what is legitimate in confession. And it does not matter whether he did or didn't give her an absolution. The church would want her privacy protected, not for her sake, in particular, but for everybody's sake, so that everybody knows when you go to confession, what you say in confession stays in confession. You are not going to be ratted out. And this is an extremely important principle. It encourages people to go to confession and be reconciled with God. And even if that means letting a few guilty people go, it's better this way than to scare people off from being reconciled with God. Just like in our criminal justice system, we uh, consider people legally innocent until proven guilty. And that means some guilty people are going to go free, but it's better to let some guilty people go free than to have the tyrannical situation of you're presumed guilty until you can prove yourself innocent, which would result in lots of innocent people being punished. So we have to make these sacrifices. The civil society has, in the case of the church, said it's better to let some guilty people go free for the sake of the innocent. The church has said the same thing about confession. Uh, thanks very much for that question about the PK blinders from uh, Christian. That still, I can't get it. I just can't get it to work. Jimmy Aiken's been our guest. It's been weird questions. Uh, this episode of Weird Accents with Sykele. <laughs> weird Accents. Yeah, that's, that's my show. Those are some great weird questions. Uh, what are your theories about these listeners' weird questions? You can let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page. 
sending us an email to mysterious at sqpn.com, sending a tweet to at mys underscore world, visiting the StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord, or calling our mysterious feedback line at 619-738-4515. That's 619-738-4515. And I want to say a special word of thanks to Oasis Studio 7 for the video and animation work they did on this episode. You can check out the work they do and see how much it adds to the podcast by going to uh, my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Jimmy Aiken. And while you're there, I I am trying to grow my channel, so I'd really appreciate it if you would subscribe and hit the bell notification so that you always get a notification whenever we release a new Mysterious World video or one of the other videos I release. Excellent. Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? Next week will be part one of a two-part discussion. We're going to be telling you the story of the Lakota Native American leader, Nicholas Black Elk his dramatic life story, his paranormal experiences as a medicine man, and what some historians have deliberately tried to suppress about him. Folks, be sure to get your very own Mysterious World t-shirt, mug, and more in our merchandise shop at sqpn.com merch. You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion on our show notes at mysterious.fm slash 265. And remember, to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Yakin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part by Rosary Army, featuring award-winning Catholic podcasts, rosary resources, videos, and the School of Mary online community, prayer, and learning platform. Learn how to make them, pray them, and give them away while growing in your faith at rosaryarmy.com and schoolofmary.com. And by Tim Shevlin's Personal Fitness Training for Catholics, providing spiritual and physical wellness through personalized nutrition, workout and prayer programs, and daily accountability check-ins. Learn more by visiting fitcatholics.com. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for, for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. If you've enjoyed Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World, you'll also enjoy another StarQuest Network show, The Secrets of Doctor Who. Find it wherever you can find podcasts or at sqpn.com slash Doctor Who.